River. Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Chantelle from the Little Bookshop Cookham will be joining us with some hot reading tips for September. And we'll be jumping off our seats with our choice of thrillers. morning. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. Thank you for joining us today. We've got a packed show coming up. We're being joined by Chantal from the Little Bookshop in Cookham, who will be recommending some great reads for the autumn. And we'll be thrilling you all with some fast-paced page-turners. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news. Yes, and, and it's this point uh, where I encourage our listeners every week to get in touch with us. And I'm really delighted to tell you, Heather, that two of our listeners have. Mrs. Yeah, really, Mrs. Moko Kelly from North London wrote to me to say how much she enjoyed our last programme, particularly the segment on Russian literature. And then Moko went on to mention that her grandfather was studying in St. Petersburg in 1911 when Leo Tolstoy died. Yeah, exactly. And he, he, he actually has written his own memoirs um, in yeah. Japanese, but they've not been published. I think just the family have done it. And he writes about the atmosphere in the university amongst the students when this great icon of literature died. But also um, her grandfather went on to serve as a diplomat in Russia for the Japanese government. Uh, and he went through um, the, the imperial wars and the uh, communist revolution. It's a really exciting time. And what a great story in itself, you know. And you were mentioning last week um, about the war between Japan. Yes, and in 1905, which was the Russo-Japanese War. Yes, yeah, so it must have been really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. And then we, and then Catherine Dorman, who lives in Tunbridge Wells, has written in, and she's recommending Deborah Mogok's new novel, which is The Black Dress, published by Tinder Press. Good and recommendation. I, Exactly. And, and I, in, in my local bookshop, I've seen it on display. Now, Catherine thoroughly recommends this book, but she does say also you, everybody should read all of uh, Deborah's other works as well. She's a great fan of them. And in fact, um, Deborah Margaret was at the uh, Chiddingston Literary Festival um, down in Kent recently. Um, now, now that Moko and Catherine have set the pace, uh, I would like more of you two listeners to get in touch with, with me. Now, bearing in mind that Moko lives in North London and Catherine in Tunbridge Wells, so come on, all of you in the Thames Valley. You, you've been beaten to the post, so you need to write in. So you need to email me at julian at river.radio. But I must say, uh, Heather, because we've had our listeners over beyond the Thames Valley, I think we need to change our tagline. And I think it should now be River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley and beyond. 
to infinity and beyond. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for Moko and Catherine for sending those, uh, that information through. That Indeed, thank you. Right. So round up of those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press about books. So I'm going to start with saying that the Rare Book Fair uh, has just announced their dates. And oh, yes. It's the 21st to the 24th of October. Now, if anyone hasn't been to this, um, this fair before, it is a selling fair so it's not like a literary festival uh this is absolutely where um antiquarian booksellers come along and show their their selection and it's absolutely brilliant they're holding it in the Saatchi gallery um Ooh, so they really nice. Uh, it's a well-established uh, exhibition, so there's lots of international booksellers and collectors um, who go. And even if you just want to have a look at these amazing rare books, mm -hmm. manuscripts and maps and ephemera, it's absolutely well worth it. And there are going to be educational and specialist tours uh, throughout, and uh, it's, it's really good. I definitely recommend it, and we, we normally go. Well, that, I mean, that really sounds quite a, quite a super package, as you say, even if you, you know, you haven't got um, too many funds uh, to hand, but just to go and have a look and see at these, so, these fantastic examples. Yeah. And it's nice that they've got other, other um, things attached, you know, tours and lectures and things like that, which is really good that you mentioned. Yeah, last time I went, they were doing a book binding. Really? And, and we bought lots of um, sort of creams for leather binding and things. So yeah. Yeah, there's always something to do. Oh, yes. It wasn't a bit like your other hobbies in, in uh, clock repairs, is it, Heather? No, Julian has a grudge about this. So we'll move, <laughs> we'll move on. We'll move swiftly along. Now, now my little piece here is um, Richard Osman's The Man Who Died Twice, and it's out this week. Now, this is his second uh, book and, and follows the same formula uh, as his previous, which is a care home full of fantastic 17, 80-year-olds um, with all their faculties in place and plenty of money and time on their hands. Uh, the first book um, has spent a staggering 55 weeks in the Sunday Times top 10 bestseller chart. That is amazing. Isn't it? Yes. It really is a, a, an incredible um, achievement. And it, and to put it in um, sales perspective, J.K. Rowling, writing under the pseudonym of Robert Galbraith, sold 378,000 copies in her first, of her first crime novel, Cuckoo's Calling, in their first two years. Is that that's exceptional. It, yes, absolutely. Now, yeah. Richard Osman, in comparison, has sold over 1,040,000 copies of the Thursday Murder Club since last September. That's Now, that's quite incredible, I think. Yeah, I think probably COVID has something to do with it, where people are at home and they're yeah. looking True. Yeah, true. And it is. It's one of those things that you, you can you can uh, pop yourself on, on 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 your settee, pull a rug around your knees and and read quite, you know, quite happily. Um, and I think the promise and surprise, uh, but there is certainly a place for cosy crime on my bookshelf. And I'm confident that this one will be much loved, too. Yes, definitely. So this is a bit of a disappointing news. It's after 70 years, The Good Food Guide has ceased publication. Oh, no. So this book was first published in 1951 and has been an annual event ever since. And I always remember our parents used to have copies to try and identify which, uh, which restaurants uh, to, to go to. It was the brainchild of Raymond Postgate, who... <laughs> As an mm -hmm. aside, his son Oliver was the author of Eye for the Engine and Bagpuss. 
Oh, really? Gosh. Yes. Anyway, Raymond Postgate believed that food across Britain after the war was just awful and restaurateurs had become complacent and that the English wouldn't complain. And so uh, he actually said that an Englishman would rather submit to voluntary euthanasia than expose themselves <laughs> to the possibility of raised voices in public. Uh, of course, we probably know it best with Egon Rone at the uh, at the helm, yes. the Hungarian restaurateur, and he took over the editorship from Postgate in 1959. And just the book went from strength to strength and became a staple of many a venture out to a restaurant. Um, so possibly London's reputation as the capital of Euro- European gastronomy. Gastronomy. Yes. Gastronomy. <laughs> gastronomy is down to the publication and the watchful eye of the public in the past. Ah, well, that's that's an interesting story. Um, and yes, it's a pity another guy's gone. But I think companies um, often cite or use the excuse of the internet and uh, and other things for, for for dropping something like that, which was an iconic uh, yes. iconic guide. Yes. Um, now, I don't know if you saw this, Heather, this extraordinary news report recently, which is a, telling a bizarre story about a 21-year-old Leicester University student who has been charged with possessing terrorist material and received a two-year suspended sentence, but with a difference. As part of the sentence, the judge told him that he needed to read Dickens, Austin, Trollope, Hardy and Shakespeare, and the judge will personally test him every four months on his increased knowledge of literature during the sentence period. Now, I think that's quite a bizarre solution for someone um, who had a collection of 70,000 white supremacist documents, including manuals on explosives, guns and ammunition. Yeah, me. So this is a serious crime. It is a very serious crime. Um, So his taste in literature is really going to be changed. Now, the judge felt that the exposure to the literary greats will encourage empathy and imagination. Now, Although the award-winning author Francis Buffett has, in his memoir, The Child That Books Built, put forward the idea that books are a mood-altering drug intended to entertain rather than convert, um, rather than a mind-altering drug. So let's hope Mr. Spufford is wrong um, and the judge is right. Yes, and it is a mind-altering drug. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. Yes. So did you realise that it's 60-year anniversary since the Berlin Wall was actually built? Good heavens, really. I know. 1961. And there's a fascinating new book out by Helen Merriman called Tunnel 29. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically what happened is it was called, the tunnel was called 29 and it was tunneled from the east to the west. And it's named after the 29 people who managed to escape across the barrier um, during, the, uh, during the summer of 1962. So Helen Merriman found this story absolutely fascinating and she started a podcast about it, which has now been downloaded over six million times. Mm, and journalists has just turned it into a book. And what's really interesting is that the tunnel excavation was actually filmed by NBC in the States. Um, so in effect, they were paying the Germans a fee in exchange for letting them film the tunnelling actually start um, and swearing to keep it a secret until the tunnel was complete and everyone as possible were, were out. So that must have been quite scary. but um, Really, and, you know, potentially very risky. God. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, I 
stayed in Berlin whilst um, the Berlin Wall was still up. So obviously this was quite a number of mm. years ago. And the hotel we stayed in was right by the war. And the manager had we used to live in the east and used to come across um, when you could, when it was just one open mm-hmm. city every, uh, every day for work. And he was about sort of 16. And then one day he went, uh, went to work and he saw that there were, the army were there and they were building barriers. And then the next day he, so he went home that night and he said to his mum, it's, it's going to be really hard getting back to work tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And they realised that overnight this barrier then had become um, impassable. And um, there was a churchyard and the um, the line of the wall went over the churchyard. And to start off with, it was just barbed wire. Right. So what his parents said is, whatever you've got to do, try and get back into the West, because that's obviously mm-hmm. where your life is going to be. So he pretended to take some flowers onto a gravestone. Oh. And when the um, army wasn't looking, because they were there pr- patrolling it, mm-hmm. with the guns, when they weren't looking, he zipped over. Um, but that, that meant he was 16 and he was miles away from his family and oh. couldn't get across. It was yeah. just really interesting talking to somebody mm. actually been there and his family was on one side and he was on the other mm. um, it's really quite harrowing I think yes yes and yes at that age at 16 and then that's it basically not knowing when you're going to see your mum and dad again yeah yeah, yeah. But, but, really I mean you just yeah didn't know oh yeah. dear well, after, after all the, the, the literary loveies, and that, of course, is all of us listening Absolutely. today. Yeah. Um, Anthony Horowitz, the great author and, uh, of course, um, a screen uh, writer as well. His latest instalment of his series about a perpetual anxious crime author and a private investigator is out now. Uh, their collaboration on books about detectives' most spectacular, spectacular cases, gosh, my, my teeth need to be adjusted today too, um, has never been easy, but it becomes more fraught when the pair take uh, in a hastily arranged literary festival. Lots of deliciously comic moments as they encounter fellow guests and, of course, a murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is called A Line to Kill and it's published by Century and it's out now. So thunder out. Well, no, not for the next hour. After we finish, then thunder out to the bookshop to buy it. Fantastic. And finally, we just want to say a huge congratulations to Susanna Clark, who has just won the £30,000 Women's Prize for Fiction uh, for her second novel, Piranesi, which has been published by Bloomsbury. Mm. Now, I don't know if you remember, but Susanna Clark wrote that amazing book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Yes, it was, I, was, I, I, I hadn't read the book, but I watched the television series. It was really gripping. I thought it was oh, really fantastic. Oh, I didn't know they did a television Oh, yes, it was really, uh, really good. Really oh, good. The, the book was amazing. Right. Quite, quite strange. Piranesi mm-hmm. is equally fantastical, and it follows the eponymous character as he navigates his house, which is set in the world of a watery labyrinth. Mm-hmm. So she's quite um, sort of fantastical, but... The writing is beautiful, so I would absolutely recommend it. But what's really interesting is that Susanna Clark was struck by a chronic illness after the release of her debut novel. So this Jonathan Clark and Miss and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell did so well, but she wasn't able to capitalise on it. Oh. Um, but so it's really exciting and all the more important that actually 
she has managed to work on this book while she was ill. And she dedicated it to all those who've been incapacitated uh, by a, a long-term illness. And I think with long COVID, um, that uh, that might be many of us. Mm, so indeed. Out there. And uh, because the award was given in person uh, this year, unlike last year, they also gave the winner of last year's prize um, a trophy. And um, it was Maggie O'Farrell who won the 2020 oh, yes. prize uh, with Hamnet. And uh, she got a masked version of her trophy. Ah, right. Well, that's, well, that's a nice story. Yes. So this is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you for listening. The nights are now drawing in. Children are back at school and this is the time to spend our evenings reading. Although I must admit all seasons are reading seasons for me. But there's something about autumn, isn't there? Um, We've been joined today by Chantal from the Little Bookshop in Cookham to find out about her hot reading tips uh, for the autumn season. So, Chantal, over to you. (laughs) Chantal, hi. I understand September is a huge month for booksellers. Yep, it's the start of the Christmas period, really. So all the publishers have uh, lined everything up and it all starts now. We have, on average, about 16,000 books published every month. But September is particularly exciting. I thought October used to be the big month. Starts earlier every year. (laughs) So what are you looking forward to then in September? Well, what came out yesterday potentially might be one of the biggest ones. I think there'll be something that might peak it, but it is Sally Rooney's Beautiful World, Where Are You? Absolutely. Well known from um, Normal People, which was made into a huge television programme, and there's been enormous demand for this one. We sold out within, well, within an hour of opening on opening day. So, Wow, that's it. That's yes, fantastic news. And the next one, which will be potentially might eclipse it, we don't know, is The Man Who Died Twice, which is the second Richard Osmond book. Uh, that's coming out on 16th of September. So I was reading that his first book, The uh, Thursday Murder Club, has basically been in the bestsellers list, well, but since it was published. Yes. So are we expecting exactly the same from, from this one? Uh-huh. I've got I've got pre-orders and I've had them for ages. We've managed to get I think hopefully fingers crossed eight signed copies, <laughs> but so most of those have been have been bought out already. Yeah. I know I know it's it's going to be it's going to be huge. And actually, I'm meeting him. He's the keynote speaker at the Booksellers Conference. And so so yeah, I'll see what he has to say for himself. But it's very exciting. Yeah, and then we have uh, Cloud's new book, much anticipated. He wrote All the Light We Cannot See, which was the Pulitzer Prize winner. And uh, everyone is very much uh, looking forward to that. That's not out until the 28th of September. We have a new Sebastian Forbes. So that's, I'm reading that at the moment. Very well written. Beautiful. Love it. As Uh, you'd expect, as you'd expect Sebastian Forbes to be. He definitely doesn't let you down. And then there is, this is quite an interesting one, Ian Rankin. All the Ian Rankin fans out there. This is Willie McElvaney's very famous series and there was a, a manuscript um, when he passed away that was about the first case and has finished it oh, great so, i know i know so for all those crime thriller lovers out there this is glasgow set in the 1970s and uh, it's very gritty and um real page turner <laughs> there's also uh, a new richard powers coming out on the 21st of september he wrote overstory which was uh, shortlisted for booker prize and that one's Bewilderment. So that's coming out too. We're all very excited about that one. And that's actually on the long list for the Booker Prize this year as well. 
Now, after all of that, you might need something a little bit more uplifting. So <laughs> there is the uh, Cat Who Saved Books by Sesuko Natsukawa. It's our indie book of the month, and it's just lovely. <laughs> What's it about? Well, it's a Japanese book. They always seem to feature cats quite heavily. I, I think they're quite lucky, but it's about a tiny little secondhand bookshop, and it sort of goes into magical realism, and uh, there's a, a grandfather who owns it dies, and the grandson has to go on this quest with his cat and save all the books. Well, I think I think bookshops sell and the cats sell. I was once told by an editor, if you really wanted to write a cosy crime book, <laughs> you needed to put it. Yes, yeah. you needed to stick a cat in it. It was guaranteed to be a bestseller. This actually came out on the 31st of August, but kind of counts as um, a September release, which is The Women of Troy, Pat Barker's latest in her se- series of Greek mythology. And if you've, if you've read any of it, they're real page turners. Starts with a bang, as always, of everybody inside the Trojan horse. Very exciting. So, uh, yes, definitely recommend that. Yeah, and I think Pat Barker is a great storyteller, isn't she? I just love her, her work. Yes, um, I can book there. Besides the girls, I think I read it in about two days. Yeah. I just it. But it's a big <laughs> thing, isn't there, about retelling mythology from a feminine perspective? Um, yes. That seems to be quite a trend at the moment. Yes, Natalie Haynes and, and Madeline Miller and Jennifer Saint, who we had an event with. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's really uh, something that's taken off. And yeah. Great. I read mythology as a child. Most people did. And then um, we're getting to learn more about it. And Pat Bark is not going to disappoint, is she? She's, she'll be fantastic. It is fantastic, beautifully written, it's very exciting, real page turner. Yeah. So that's your uh, your September choice list, is it? That's our fiction one. We're on fictions, just because. You can. Bob Mortimer, his, his, his autobiography called And Away is out now, and he doesn't disappoint either. And for everyone who loves Rick and Bob, you know, this is this is for us. Yes, he, comes, um, he comes across as quite a sad character, actually, doesn't he, in a way? really interesting backgrounds you know he was a solicitor and it was just by chance that he then had this tv career he's never grown out of being a child i think Absolutely. yeah which is why his humor is so zany and then jenny oliver has a new book out together which he wrote during lockdown which is all about us all being able to you know see people again and celebrate and it's it's just a really nice lovely and that was straight in at number one when it was launched. That's right. Together, 2nd of September. And on Cookery Books, Ottolenghi has a new one coming out on 30th of September called Test Kitchen. So I can't wait for that one. I think there's a load of Ottolenghi fans out there, aren't there? I have it on pre-order. I can't wait. <laughs> um, I have a couple of recommendations for children as well. Lemony Snicket's new one, Poison for Breakfast. Ah, great. Cautionary Tale from Lemony Snicket's there. And this beautiful one from Kyra Mould Hargrave is a Julia and the Shark. It's a really lovely uh, edition. It's got fantastic illustrations by Tom DePresta. And I really recommend that. That's our independent book of the month for children. And that looks like a nice gift book. Yes, it's lovely. And then there are a couple coming out in October, which is slightly cheaty, but they're just too big not to mention. On uh, the 16th of October, it's the John Le Carré. It's been released, Silverview, yes. <laughs> the manuscript that hadn't been published before he sadly passed away. Uh, so that's 16th of October that's coming out. And then Elizabeth Strout has another one in her Lucy Barson series. And I know there'll be fans wanting to pre-order that one. And of course, the uh, much-anticipated Lincoln Highway from Amor Towers is coming out on the 21st of October. Uh, he wrote uh, Gentleman in Moscow, which is a book 
club's favourites across the country. So I can't wait to read that one. Brilliant. And all those books can be pre-ordered now, but won't be available until until October. Until the, just like in the music industry, books come out on their publication day. Quite, and quite right too. Absolutely. People get confused because you see lots of reviews of them online, but that's from people who've been very luckily sent uh, you know, an advanced copy. Just to whet our appetite so we can get our orders in soon. That sounds brilliant. And I'm so surprised at how many strong books are coming out in September. I always think September's sort of starting the year. I always think it's better than January the 1st in a way. When the kids go back to school. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you sort of need shiny new stationery and lots of new books, yeah. I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And the children have all been in with their reading lists. It's a good time for books, actually. And the weather starts to get a bit cooler and everyone's staying aside and reading. So it's more sort of cosy reading time. So out of all those September books that you've been mentioning, what's what's top of your list? Uh, well, I started Sally Rooney. and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I, I think she's a brilliant writer. It's in a way that's so easy to visualise the characters and just fall into the story. I'm really enjoying Sebastian Falks, I have to say. I'm reading that as well. And I'm a huge Ian Rankin fan. So I, that's also on the go. And I'd say Cal Cuckoo Land is going to be, it's going to be a, big, a big one. And soon everybody's read uh, Old Light You Cannot See and, uh, and loved it. So, yeah, so we'll have to just keep fingers crossed. And, yes. Uh, yeah, so that sounds brilliant. Chantal, thank you very much, Dean. That's a great list, a really good list. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you. Bye. I've got to say that was an amazing list of uh, books that are coming out in September. So lots to uh, a lots for us to enjoy there. And if that hasn't been enough to inspire you today, we'd like to make some thrilling recommendations of our own with some of our favourite authors of thrillers. So let's jump off the cliff together and we can introduce you to some books to get your heart racing. So, Julian, what do you think? And there's no right or wrong answer on this, of course. What do you think constitutes a good thriller in your eyes? Well, uh, it, it, it's an interesting question because um, is, a, is a murder story considered a thriller um, in, in that respect? So you've got, you've got something ultimately that there's obviously a murder which has to be solved. Yeah. Is there something, uh, a novel a bit like The Riddle of the Sands, um, Erskine Childers, which was set just before the uh, First World War, which is, which is a mystery and a thriller about um, two young guys going off um, on a sailing holiday in, 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 in the, the, the north of Germany and 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 a uh, spy spot the the uh, Imperial German uh, army uh, preparing to invade you uh, Britain with with um, with barges. I mean, so it, it's quite interesting. So so in a way, what does constitute const, constitute the thriller? Yeah, um, yeah. You, know, you know, is it? And then is there is there the political thriller of which, of course, one will be discussing a bit later, or I'll be discussing a bit later. Well, in fact, two absolutely, of them. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think there's probably lots of different books could be seen as a thriller. And it's all about the the fast pace, the fact that you want to read on and turn the page. It's the tension and the suspense as well, isn't it? Mm, I think so. And, and and that and, and that's and, and that's the key to it. It, it, it it's how fast it moves along. <clears throat> Pardon me. So uh, uh, until mentioned the the latest uh, Jean Le Carré uh, novel, Silverview, yes, which is coming out. Uh, and of course, he's a thriller writer, and he's a sort of a a political spy thriller writer. I'd probably say. 
Yes, well, yes, indeed. I mean, because because in the main, of course, his early works, which were the um, the smiley ones, of course, it was it was the ideology of the West against uh, yeah. the, the communist East, which of course is very political. Yes, yes. So, so I've, I've had a little look at what the plot is. Obviously, I haven't seen the book myself. Mm. So the plot is that there's a gentleman, Julian Lawnsley. He's renounced his high flying job in the city for a simpler life running a bookshop in a small English seaside town. So we already like this guy because he's running a bookshop. And of but, course, everyone associated with books are, are generally... Exactly. And also, he's got a great name. I mean, great first name. Of course, Julian, of course. <laughs> I, I missed that. So we absolutely love this guy. So he's going to be our hero. Uh, a couple of months into his new career, his evening is disrupted by a visitor, Edward, who's a Polish emigre, and he's living in Silverview, the big house on the edge of the town. Ah. He seems to know rather a lot about Julian's family and is rather too interested in the inner workings of this modest new enterprise, the bookshop. Mm. So already you've got something a bit suspenseful happening, yes. haven't you? You want to know more. You want to think, hmm. So anyway a letter turns up at the door of a spy chief in London, warning him of a dangerous leap, and the investigations lead him to this quiet town by the sea. Ah. So what we have is we've got a great hero. We've got an interesting situation where there's obviously somebody a bit too interested in your family. We know that there's a dangerous leak of information and the spy chief has got to be involved and they're moving in to this um, seaside town. So it's a story where you encounter innocence and experience and you have to choose between public duty and private morals. Mm. John Carey asks you what you owe your country when you no longer recognise it. So that's very interesting. It is. Yes, it's quite quite a question. Yeah. So I think... There sounds like there's tension, suspense, unexpected twists and high stakes involved. Indeed. So let's say that's what a thriller is all about. Julian, let's start with our choices of thrillers today. And what's your first one? Well, my my first one um, is indeed a thriller and which a great um, uh, link from John the Carrier because it is The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad, which was published by Methuen in 1907, which is quite uh, quite a, an important date. <clears throat> Pardon me. And although The Secret Agent um, was uh, one of Conrad's finest works, it fared rather poorly on publication on both sides of the Atlantic, selling only 3,076 copies between 1907 and 1914, and only moderately during Conrad's life. However, perceptions do change, um, so much so that the New York Times stated that it is the most brilliant novelistic study of terrorism. And there's... Uh, and, as if to further endorse it, The Secret Agent was one of three works of literature most cited by the American press uh, two weeks after the events of September 11th, 20 years ago. Wow. Shall we listen to a bit of that now? Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. We've got a recording, haven't we? So let's, let's listen to a little bit of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. Private Games by James Patterson. Oh, that's not it. No, I don't think we have. Oh, we haven't. Oh, I no. do apologise. Technical hitch. <laughs> yes. Uh, which I must admit, I thought, <laughs> well, there we go, but you never know. <laughs> but never mind, never mind. 
Um, anyway, our story uh, is set in London in, in 1886, and it follows the life of a shopkeeper and a secret agent who goes by the name of Adolf Veloc. Now, Veloc lives with his wife, Winnie, and his mother-in-law, and Stevie, Winnie's brother, who suffers from a mental disability, which may well be autism. Now, in addition to his family, <laughs> Veloc counts among his friends a group of rather ineffectual anarchists who uh, do very little uh, more than pr uh, produce uh, pamphlets under the title FP, which is an acronym for the future of the proletariat. Right. Now, included amongst this rather dismal band is Comrade Ossipon, then there's Michaelis, and then there's also the professor who goes about claiming he has a bomb in the lining of his coat, which he can detonate at any moment, killing himself and anyone near him. Now, even though Veloc is a member of um, this anarchist group, he is in the pay of an uh, as an argent provocateur of a foreign power. Now, the country remains unknown, but it's, it, it's presumed to be Russia. Uh, and he is summoned to a meeting at the embassy by the first secretary, um, who's the new first secretary of the embassy, Mr. Vladimir, whereupon he's told in no uncertain terms that he's a bit of a failure um, as a secret agent and not a very fine example. And in order to redeem himself, he has got to carry out an operation. And that's the destruction of the Greenwich Observatory. Uh, in, yes. And the idea being that the lax attitude of the British government and the British public toward anarchism, which is in, 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 in a danger to, to the um, uh, country of the embassy or the, the first minister, um, will be overturned by this outrage and a suitable consequences will be meted out on anarchist groups. This is the idea behind it. It was, yes, it was. Um, and, 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 and it, it, and it, it came, um, uh, as, as we mentioned last week, in, in, in forms where, you know, people would just attempt to, to bump off a head of state or, or cause some outrage. Mm. Um, and, you know, and this one, we, we don't quite know what the anarchists are, but one presumes it probably is, is the early uh, developments of Bolshevism since the book was written in 1907. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, Conrad uses a very interesting device um, in the novel where, where he flashes forward um, to after the bombing has taken place. And we discover from uh, the chief inspector Heat, the main character, that one man has died in the blast. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> then Conrad um, flashes back to before the bombing. And as Veloc returns from a business trip um, to the continent, his wife tells him that um, how much regard Stevie has for Veloc and asks her husband if he take more time with Stevie, which he agrees. Now, the relationship improves between Veloc and Stevie. Um, and so much so that um, uh, he, <clears throat> Veloc tells his wife he's going to take Stevie to the country to visit his friend Michaelis and that they'll stay in the countryside for a few days. And this is very important. Now, a short time after, Chief Inspector Heat calls to talk to Veloc, but Veloc Veloc's left for, for a meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and so Heat informs Winnie that a coat has been recovered at the scene of the explosion with the shop's address written in the label. Now, Mrs. Veloc confirms that it was Stevie's overcoat. When Veloc returns, he realises his wife knows that the bomb killed Stevie and he confesses. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit, which is not actually um, giving all the plot away. But in her anguish, Mrs. Veloc fatally stabs her husband. Now, as I say, that's not um, all of it, and it isn't the giveaway to the punchline. So you'll have to read the book and find out what happens to Mrs. Veloc, to Comrade Ossipon, who pops up at this stage, and Veloc's savings. Now, as you imagine, this story is ripe for film and television. Alfred Hitchcock did, in fact, make a film of it in 1960. 
36 called yeah. the sabotage with oscar homolka playing volok but that plot was was quite substantially different from the novel but more recently in 2016 i don't know if you uh, you saw this the bbc produced a three-part miniseries which was excellent with toby jones playing velock and vicky mcclaw as mrs velock oh no i didn't see that mm, it was really good it was very, really good and that was that was that was faithful to the book yeah, I've got to say, Joseph Conrad writes beautifully. I remember reading The Heart of Darkness mm. many, many, many years ago. And I yeah. just remember the, the horror of yes. Google. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's just fantastic. Yeah. So I've chosen somebody more current. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's writing books aplenty as we speak. And I think he's probably the master of the thriller. I don't know if you're going to agree with me. So he's a prolific author who started life as an advertising copywriter. And uh, I think that gives you a real edge in terms of being able to say something pithy and to the point. Mm -hmm. And uh, the author is, of course, is James Patterson. And lots of his books have very short chapters, which is quite like an advertising copywriter's thing, isn't it? Mm, Yes. The short chapter. And that means that if you're reading it in bed, you can go, oh, I'll just one more chapter. It's only half a page. I can just read this one more page. And then you just keep saying that and saying that. And then it's three o'clock in the morning and you mm-hmm. still haven't <laughs> turned the light off uh, because you're captured just by the excitement of the story. And I think those short chapters really help in that. Um, and I'm confident that whichever James Patterson book you pick up, it's going to be a fast and furious read, which will keep mm-hmm. you on the edge of your seat. But as just as an example of what he does best, here's a short extract from Private Games, which was published in 2012. And it was written, it was jointly written between James Patterson and Mark Sullivan. So let's hear a little bit from the story. Private Games by James Patterson. Jack landed beside Knight and together they raced towards the pier, which was lit by several dim red emergency lights. They slowed less than 20 yards from the ramp that led down onto the pier itself. Two Gurkhas lay dead on the ground, their throats slit from ear to ear. Rain drummed on the surface of the dock. The river bus's engines growled loud as it approached, but then Knight heard another engine start up. Jack heard it too. They've got a boat! Knight vaulted the chain that was strung across the entrance to the ramp and ran down onto the dock, sweeping his gun and pen light from side to side, looking for movement. A Metropolitan Police officer, the woman who'd been riding the jet sled, lay dead on the pier, eyes bulging, her neck at an unnatural angle. Knight ran past to the edge of the dock, hearing an outboard motor starting to accelerate in the fog and rain. He noticed the officer's jet sled tied to the pier, ran to it, saw the key in the ignition, jumped on and started it while Jack grabbed the officer's radio and got on behind Knight, calling, This is Jack Morgan, Metropolitan River Police Officer, dead on Queen Elizabeth II Pier. We are in pursuit of killers on the river. Repeat, we are in pursuit of killers on the river. Knight twisted the throttle. The sled leapt away from the pier, making almost no noise, and in seconds they were deep into the fog. The mist was thick, reducing visibility to less than 10 metres, and the water was choppy, with a strong current drawn east by the ebbing tide. Radio traffic crackled on Jack's radio in response to his call. 
but he did not answer and turned down the volume so they could better hear the outboard coughing somewhere ahead of them. Knight noticed a digital compass on the dashboard of the sled. The outboard was heading north by northeast in the middle of the Thames at a slow speed, probably because of the poor visibility. Feeling confident that he could catch them now, Knight hit the throttle hard and prayed that they did not hit anything. Were there boys out there? There had to be. Across the river, he could just make out the blinking light of Trinity Boy Wharf. They're heading towards the River Lee, Knight yelled over his shoulder. It goes back through the Olympic Park. Killers heading towards Lee River Mouth, Jack barked into the radio. They heard sirens wailing from both banks of the Thames now, and then the outboard motor went into full throttle. The fog cleared a bit, and no more than 100 metres ahead of them, on the river, Knight spotted the racing shadow of a bow rider with its lights extinguished and heard its engines screaming. Knight mashed his throttle to close the gap. At the same moment, he realised that the escape boat wasn't heading towards the mouth of the Lee at all. It was off by several degrees, speeding straight at the high cement retaining wall on the east side of the confluence. They're going to hit, Jack yelled. Knight let go the throttle of the jet sled at a split second before the speedboat struck the wall dead on and exploded in a series of blasts that mushroomed into fireballs and flares that licked and seared through the rain and fog. Debris and shrapnel rained down, forcing Knight and Jack to retreat. They never heard the quiet sounds of three swimmers moving eastward with the ebbing tide. A chase across the river in London. You can practically hear the water lapping. And yeah. what a great idea. The three swimmers, they jump into the river whilst all this explosion happening yeah. to get away. It's in fact actually has got the elements of a James Bond story, hasn't it? With it I think what, there was a James Bond story, wasn't there? Was, there? there was in the river, yes. Um, was that, I think, was that the one with Piers Brosnan in it, I think? Yeah, with the, by the Millennium Dome. That's right, yes. Okay. It was zooming, yeah, that was fantastic. And yeah. that's when he flies in the boat, flies up out and goes across a road, I think, and then because he's going down some 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 side um, tributary, he flies over in the boat. It was really fantastic. Yes, I wonder who wrote it first, Jane, um, the James Bond script people or uh, James Patterson. Oh, well, don't um, know. Yes. So anyway, so private um, private games is um, is set around the 2012 uh, Olympic Games in London, mm -hmm. where Private is actually uh, an impressive investigation firm, and they've been commissioned to provide security. And the opening ceremony, hours away, and uh, a private investigator and single father of twins, Peter Knight, is called to the scene of a ruthless murder, and a high-ranking member of the organising committee is being killed. And Karen Pope, who you heard mentioned there as well, mm. a newspaper reporter, and she receives a letter from a person who calls himself Cronus, claiming responsibility for the murders and promising to destroy all those who have corrupted the games with lies, corruption and greed. Mm. So Karen and Knight, they work together to uncover the criminal genius. And um, it's exhilarating, it's action-packed. And because the Olympics, the London Olympics, were so amazing, you're very, it's very visual. You can see, see things happening uh, in front of you. 
So James Patterson's first breakout novel was Along Came a Spider, which introduced the detective Alex Cross. And uh, cleverly, he used his advertising experience to develop an ad campaign for the book, which no doubt helped it become such a bestseller. And it still is people's favourite book of uh, James Patterson. And so it's a great one to start if you've not read any before. Uh, I've got to say, I was in the beautiful uh, town of Ludlow once, and I noticed this little lady uh, walk along with a, uh, a basket over her arm, and it's full of um, fruit produce from the um, from the market. And actually, the book um, "Along Came a Spider" was sticking out as well. And it was absolutely <laughs> marvelous. <laughs> you couldn't have anticipated that this lady would read it, but it is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> We all deserve to read it. Um, and Patterson's name appears on more books than most other authors um, because he's just so prolific. Sometimes he has 14 books published in a year. Good grief. Which is incredible. Now, his most famous, he does a lot of them with co-authors. Mm-hmm. Um, his most famous co-author, I'd hazard a guess at, is Bill Clinton. Oh, good heavens, yes. Uh, He's done two with Bill Clinton. The first, The President is Missing, and then The President's Daughter. And um, I did see a review uh, about The President is Missing, saying that it had rather two-dimensional characters, but that was actually being a bit rude to two-dimensional characters. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't read the book, so... I'm not saying it's bad or anything. I think we should just go for it. And uh, we did mention a few weeks ago that Dolly Parton and James Patterson are... That's right, yes. And they're doing Run, Rose, Run, which I think is out next March. Yes, yes, I think it is. So James Patterson, absolutely prolific, but definitely if you're into thrillers or you want to experience a great thriller, definitely a marvellous choice. Great. Well, my choice is um, the uh, the Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth, a local author, a local author indeed, and also I was going to say a prolific uh, contributor to the newspaper letters page of the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> is he? <laughs> yes, he is. Anyway, just to introduce it, I believe we have a little reading. I do indeed. A reading it. A reading it. Let's um, sort that out now for you. It is cold at 6.40 in the morning of a March day in Paris and seems even colder when a man is about to be executed by firing squad. At that hour on March 11th, 1963, in the main courtyard of the Fort d'Ivry, a French Air Force colonel stood before a stake driven into the chilly gravel as his hands were bound behind the post and stared with slowly diminishing disbelief at the squad of soldiers facing him 20 metres away. Foot scuffed the grit, a tiny release from tension, as the blindfold was wrapped around the eyes of Lieutenant Colonel Jean-Marie Bastien Thierry, blotting out the light for the last time. The mumbling of the priest was a helpless counterpoint to the crackling of twenty rifle bolts as the soldiers charged and cocked their carbines. Beyond the walls, a burly truck blared for a passage as some smaller vehicle crossed its path towards the centre of the city. The sound died away masking the take-your-aim order from the officer in charge of the squad. The crash of rifle fire, when it came, caused no ripple on the surface of the waking city, other than to send a flutter of pigeons skywards for a few moments. The single whack 
seconds later, the coup de grace was lost in the rising din of traffic from beyond the walls. The death of the officer, leader of a gang of secret army organization killers who had sought to shoot the president of France, was to have been an end, an end to further attempts on the president's life. By a quirk of fate, it marked a beginning. And to explain why it must be first necessary to explain why a riddled body came to hang from its ropes in the courtyard of the military prison outside Paris on that March morning. Well, The Day of the Jackal was uh, first published by Hutchinson in 1971. <clears throat> and I certainly think that uh, it falls into the category of a modern classic. Though, interestingly, the existence came out, uh, came about more from desperation than anything else, because Frederick Forsyth had been a BBC journalist covering the Biafran War in 1967. And after a short stint as a freelance, he returned to Britain flat broke, hence the desperation for money. Um, as we've heard from um, the, uh, the, the piece just there, The Day of the Jackal opens based on fact, and that was the attempted assassination of the then French president, Charles de Gaulle. The plot was conceived and carried out on the 22nd of August, 1962, led by a former officer in the French Air Force, Lieutenant Colonel Jean Bastien Thierry. The plot failed. Bastien Thierry, along with his co-conspirators, was arrested, though he alone, when found guilty, was executed by firing squad. And he was the last man in France to be executed by that method. Now, the reason, um, the reason for the plot um, was the extreme anger among former officers of the French military who thought de Gaulle a traitor to France for granting independence to Algeria after an eight-year bitter war. These disgruntled officers were members of a, a militant uh, right-wing terrorist group known as the OAS. Now, after the failure of the plot and severe brutal roundup of OAS members by action service of the French Secret Service, the OAS was almost finished. However, this is where the author adds a fictional element. Colonel Rodin of the OAS and a few others were holed up in a mountain um, refuge thinking about what to do next when it was decided that they will continue with their campaign uh, to have the president assassinated, but they were going to hire a professional assassin with no links to the OAS whatsoever. Now, a candidate is selected, an Englishman, who meets the OAS members in a hotel in Vienna and terms are agreed. He will undertake the task for half a million pounds, which was equivalent to three and a half million pounds today, with half to be paid in advance and the balance on completion. When asked what his code name will be, the assassin chooses the jackal. Now, from here on, the story develops deliciously with two strands. One where the, we follow the um, assassin's meticulous planning, taking the identity of a dead infant, um, which he's taken from the records of Somerset House, to obtain a passport in the name of Alexander Duggan. He then steals two other passports from tourists in case he needs backups. He travels to Belgium to visit a master gunsmith who makes him a very special rifle to his own design. Then he travels to Genoa to a master forger for the documents he he must have, then he has to dispose of the forger because he becomes very greedy and wants more money. Uh, then the assassin drives to France in an open-topped rented Alfa Romeo, where after checking into the Hotel Negresco in Nice, he finds that his cover has been blown. And that is the result of the second strand. In Paris, the Minister of the Interior and his cabinet colleagues are at a loss as to uh, what to do, especially as de Gaulle made it quite plain, he will not cancel any engagement or be restricted in any way. Now, the task of tracking down this unknown assassin is given to Deputy Police Commissioner Claude Lebel. 
Now, with the help of his British counterpart at Special Branch, the net is drawing in as they think the assassin is a certain Charles Calthrop. Puzzled by what seems to be the assassin always being one step ahead, LaBelle taps the phones of all the cabinet members, much to their horror when they find out, and discovers that the OAS has an agent who is having an affair with a member of the cabinet, an Air Force colonel. Now, the climax of the story is Paris, 25th of August, Liberation Day, when the president will present medals um, to uh, so war veterans. And it is that day, LaBelle deduces, when the jackal will strike. Now, the jackal moves around the district, masquerading as a one-legged French veteran before entering an apartment building where he has managed to break into to do the deed. Now, the climax is truly exciting, and you must read the book to find out what happens. Or, if you can't, and I know you sometimes tease me about this, there is the excellent film. Um, uh, <laughs> it's an excellent film, actually. That's it is, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and basically, it is good because it keeps very faithfully to the author's storyline. Uh, it's one of my all-time, all-time favourites. Uh, Edward Fox playing the jackal. My, uh, Michael Lonsdale as Claude LaBelle, who I think is fantastic. Jeropy, uh, sorry, Derek Jacobi is his assistant, Caron. And we also have Donald Sinden, Alan Badell, Ronald Pickup and Anton Rogers, Timothy West and Eric Porter amongst a galaxy of well-known actors. But it is a book well worth reading and it's yeah. a film well worth watching. And it's their 50th year anniversary, is it, this year? Um, I think, yes. Yeah. I think so, yes. Which is brilliant. So I've met Frederick Poulsen. Have you? A charming gentleman. I've, I've, I've heard that he is, yes. He did an interview at a literary festival that we were attending and it was a conversation about his life and he was lovely and Mm -hmm. he owned up to the fact that um, he was offered um, the opportunity of either getting paid for the film rights as as like a one-off or getting um, sort of like royalties as it goes along. He chose a one-off payment. Oh, no! So back in 1972 or whenever the film was, I don't know when the film was done, round about then, he was given £20,000, which was a lot of money. Yes, yes. But unfortunately, he would have been better off going for royalty. <laughs> well, he would. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. But as I say, since the book was published in 1971, and it was out of desperation, I mean, he really was short of money. And That's so probably that one said. payment would, be, you know, this would be yip doo It's big time. But I always remember seeing him um, in adverts um, where he was, he, was, he was one of the people uh, that would advertise the Rolex watches. So he obviously did very well for himself in the end. Yeah. Ollie, yes. and he was lovely. And he does look like a James Bond character. He does, doesn't he? He's very, uh, very sophisticated. Yeah. Yes, very suave and, yes, uh, very tanned and very international. Yeah, and he's lovely even, yeah. even today. Yeah. He's just as lovely. So if you're listening, Frederick, thank you, Freddie. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I have chosen uh, a political thriller. Oh. Uh, this one is set in ancient Rome. Cicero by Robert Harris. Now, uh, Robert Harris is quite, we're, we're quite good fans of Robert Harris. Mm-hmm. Every time his uh, book comes out, he normally has one book a year, comes out normally in, uh, in October. Uh, well, we will go ahead and buy it. And um, his latest book was V2, about the doodle books of World War mm-hmm. II. And you might have listened to us review that um, earlier on this year. And he's written 14 thrillers to date, all of them bestsellers and real page turners. And many of them have been turned into films or TV mini series. 
But my recommendation is a trilogy. It's the Cicero trilogy. And it's based on the ancient Roman lawyer, Cicero. And the books in order are Imperium, Lustrum, and finally Dictator. Now, I know that it might be difficult to think about the biography of a politician being put into a page-turning thriller, but by golly, that is the case. Uh, you sort of roughly know the story, and um, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for Cicero. <laughs> um, but um, it charts the career of this Roman statesman, Marcus Tullius Cicero, Cicero from his mid-20s as an ambitious uh, young lawyer to his dramatic death 30 years later, pursued by an assassination squad on a cliff-top path. And the extraordinary life unfolds um, between these two episodes. And it's recounted by Cicero's private secretary, Tiro. So it's really brilliant that you've got the uh, secretary, the private secretary, telling the tale in a way. Mm. Because... Um, you find somebody that is loyal to him, but not to the point of obsession. So sometimes mm -hmm. he's critical and sometimes he's mildly mocking. Um, and Cicero really did have a, sec a secretary called Tiro. And Tiro really did write a biography of Cicero, but sadly it's been lost. Oh. Um, and Tiro, in fact, um, uh, designed shorthand because Cicero would just, spout out and um so yeah so um it's all about the law cases the elections the conspiracies the rivals and at the heart of it obviously cicero he's a very complex personality and it really brings the roman republic vividly to life uh, grandeur ambition and corruption so that's the pick of the thrillers today what is fantastic yeah and uh, it's really amazing that Cicero is a thriller, but it absolutely is. OK, well, you're listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, as I've said before, we want to hear from you. Um, Catherine in Tunbridge Wells has set the pace, along with Moco in North London. So come on, all you Thames Valley listeners. If you've got a great book that you want to tell us about or you're an author that wants to get promoted, give us a buzz. Um, drop me an email at julian at river.radio and we'll take it from there. And our hour is almost up, so I'd it like is. to announce the winner of two tickets to Henley uh, Literary Festival. And uh, that's Olivia Short from Marlow Bottom. So congrats, congratulations, Olivia. That's and super. For everyone else, uh, just do come along to the festival. There'll be definitely something to entice you. And tickets can be bought from the website. We'll also find the programme. So that's Henley Literary Festival co.uk and the festival runs from the 2nd to the 10th of october yep so from heather and julian it's a very big thank you for listening we really appreciate it and thanks also to mike burton and to julian for your readings and to chantelle from the little bookshop in cookham for recommendations books we're recommending today are Oh, I beg your pardon um there we've got um a line to kill by anthony horowitz published by century uh, the Man Who Died Twice by Richard Osman. Uh, the Piranesi by Susanna Clark, Bloomsbury. 
Oh, um, I think I've jumped ahead a bit there. But... <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> Tunnel 29, the extraordinary escape beneath the Berlin Wall, um, which is by Helena Merriman and is published by Hodra and Stoughton. Um, Snow Country by Sebastian Folks, published by Hutchinson. Um, Silverview by John Le Carre and The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. Private Games by James Patterson and Mark Sullivan. We look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11am, 12 noon on River Radio. And if you're not able to join us, then you can listen again directly from the website and turning pages on River Radio podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you.